Well, we get the, the privilege now of turning to God's Word, and as we do that this morning, we're actually going to uh, cap off and finish up a series that we've been doing on and off all year. Uh, roughly once a month this year, we've spent uh, a Sunday meditating on a different attribute of God. And so you might remember how we've talked about his justice or his holiness or his grace or his love. We've focused on various attributes of God. And this morning, uh, we're, we're going to finish that series, not because we've come to an end of his attributes, uh, that would go on forever, uh, but because we have to end somewhere. We are finite creatures and, and we have to end. So this morning, we're going to uh, devote uh, and, and consider the beauty of God, the beauty of God. Beauty may seem like an unusual word to associate with God, uh, but it is biblical, and it's really important to how we understand who God is and how we understand our relationship to him. Now, as we read our text, I do want to remind us just from the outset that the goal of preaching is supernatural in nature. Uh, It's supernatural both for the preacher, which this morning is me, and it's uh, supernatural for the hearers, which is all of us. The goal of this sermon this morning is not merely to inform you and me about some cold, lifeless facts about God's beauty. Uh, The goal of this sermon is to uh, not just give us head knowledge, but, but rather to hear with our ears true things about God. Let those things permeate our, our minds and find their way down into our hearts. And so we don't just want to come away with textbook knowledge of the beauty of God. What we want to come away with is a, um, a tasting of the beauty of God, an experience of the beauty of God where our eyes are opened and we leave here saying, there is nothing more lovely, there is nothing more uh, deserving of praise or deserving of my life than this God. That's the aim of preaching this morning. Um, and so I, I just want to start there because, because I want us to feel uh, desperate together, right? We can't manufacture that. There's, there's not um, some string of words that I can put together to uh, just mechanically make that happen. We are desperate for God as we turn to his word. Um, and so I want us to feel that desperation together, and I just want us to be unified in understanding what we are aiming to do as we open God's Word this morning. So uh, with, with that in mind, as, as most Sundays, we're going to hear from a variety of different texts. We're going to hear first from Psalm 145. Rob's going to read that for us. And Psalm 145 is 21 verses. It's a longer reading that describe the majesty and the splendor, the goodness and the beauty of God. Um, David is just reflecting on who God is. And so we'll hear first from that. Then Sharon is going to read Psalm 27, verse 4 for us, where David says that of all of his requests he could make before God, he has one, and it's to see the beauty of God. Moira will then come read John 15, uh, from John 15 for us, which really paves the way for us to see the beauty of Christ and the way that he loves us. And then lastly, Lisa will come and read from 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 4, which tells us why we are not by nature uh, simply amazed by God's beauty and glory, um, but that uh, through him speaking to our hearts, we can come alive to it. So um, let's hear these four texts read. Rob, would you start off for us, please? This is Psalm 145, a song of praise of David. 
I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works, I will meditate. They shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds, and I will declare your greatness. They shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness, and I shall sing aloud of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he has made. All your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and all your saints shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and tell of your power to make known to the children of man your mighty deeds and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures throughout all generations. The Lord is faithful in all his words and kind in all his works. The Lord upholds all who are falling and raises up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you and you give them their food in due season. You open your hand, you satisfy the desire of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his works. The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desire of those who fear him. He also hears their cry and saves them. The Lord preserves all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. My mouth will speak the praise of the Lord, and let all flesh bless his holy name forever and ever. 7.4. One thing have I asked of the Lord that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. 9-15. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants. For the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, 3 through 6. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. All right, so from those verses primarily, we're going to uh, just reflect on and consider what does it mean that God is beautiful. If you, if you like an, an outline or kind of an idea of where a sermon is going, here's, here's kind of where we're going to go. Um, we're going to talk just about beauty in general, uh, first and just, uh, consider what, 
what is even the meaning of beauty that we see uh, in the world around us. Then we'll spend some time talking about the beauty of God and what it means for God to be beautiful. And then we'll, we'll finish with specifically the beauty of Christ. And so that's where we're going. Beauty in general, beauty of God, beauty of Christ. We need to spend a few moments, I think, uh, before we get to the beauty of God and just reflecting on what is beauty in general and, and why and where do we see it. Uh, because I think as, as human beings, we, we see beauty all around us in a variety of different ways. But if you're like me, we probably don't stop to think about, well, well why is it that we see beauty and, and what makes something beautiful? Uh, for example, um, one evening recently, my family, we were busy around the house uh, doing just a number of different things. Uh, it was about 6 o'clock in the evening. I just finished work, come down from my home office. Some of the kids were busy playing. Others were doing chores. We were setting the table together, ready to enjoy a meal together. And so we were all focused on our various tasks. And if you're, when you're in a house of six different people, that's a lot of activity. And that's a lot of different things all happening at once. And then all of a sudden, uh, I don't remember which child it was, but one of my children just said, look. And all of that various activity... All the chores, the table setting, the play stopped. And it stopped because from outside our front windows, uh, over the hill in which our house sets, we saw a sky that was painted such a vibrant orange, pink, and blue that the color wasn't even just out there, but it radiated in our house and colored our living space. And, and we just stopped. And we stared. We were compelled because it was so beautiful. Now, now that was a brilliant sunset, but that's a fairly common experience, right? You've probably had a, a, the same experience over a sunset of your own, if not many sunsets in your life. We've all seen those Views that have compelled us to stop what we're doing. Or maybe it's the night sky that you, you, you come out of your house at night and you stop as you look up and see all of these pinpricks of light shining against the black night of, of the sky. Or maybe you've been to the Rockies and seen these majestic mountains jut into the clouds, into the very heavens, it seems. You just think, or perhaps the crystal blue waters of the Caribbean. Or, or, you know, maybe for you it's not visual. Maybe it's music that makes you stop. You hear a mix of melody and harmony, rhythm, tone, pitch, and you think, I just need to stop and listen to this and take it in. We are regularly captivated by beauty that for at least a moment compels us to stop whatever we are doing and just behold it, just take it in to enjoy it. Isn't that strange? Isn't that strange? Because, I mean, we live in an age of busyness. We live in an age of getting things done. It's a dog-eat-dog world out there. And we're told that only the strong survive. And so how many of us get up early? How many of us stay up late? We need to have the house in order. We need to perform at our jobs. We need to get ready for the next day of school or work. 
We have chores to do. We have to get the Christmas decorations out now. When are we going to do that? Why are we spending time gawking at the sky? And yet, that's what every member of my family did that evening a week or so ago. We stopped and we stared at the beauty that was radiating at us through our front windows. Now, on the one hand, as strange it is to ponder why it is that we stop, it may even be stranger to ponder why that beauty is there in the first place. Why are we in a world that is surrounded with beauty? What what purpose does it serve? What species... What species is advanced because the sun rises and sets in such a way? Have you ever thought of that? And we could ask so many similar questions. What purpose is there to having over 200 species of trees in Pennsylvania alone? I mean, couldn't we get by with a handful, like three or four? You'd think that would cover it. We have 200. Why are there mountains, valleys, rivers, streams, and oceans when you could just have flat land? And still water. Everything would work. Why is outer space beyond our planet filled with so much beauty that we keep inventing bigger and better telescopes just to try to see it all, whether that's the Hubble or the Webb? There's just unmatched beauty beyond our planet. The popular thought is that our universe operates by a principle of survival of the fittest, Meaning that if we want to get ahead in life, whether that's as an individual or as a corporation or as a species, well, we have to be better than everybody else. We have to be top dog, so to speak. But our experience of beauty tells us something different, doesn't it? Because if the universe operates by a survival of the fittest principle, why are we surrounded by such excessive amounts of beauty? Why? It doesn't make any sense. And why are we regularly compelled to stop getting ahead in order to look or listen or feel or take in and to experience this beauty? Well, the answer, of course, has everything to do with God. God did not create the universe as a cosmic competition where only the strong survive. No, he created the universe to display his own beauty. And if you aren't used to thinking of God as beautiful, if those two words, I'm not sure what that means when when we put those words together, God and beauty, here, here might be a simple definition that might help. God's beauty is the extravagant splendor and goodness of all that he is and all that he does. God's beauty is the extravagant. It's not just what works. It's extravagant. Extravagant splendor and goodness. It's good of all that he is and all that he does. And so the Bible is telling us that the universe exists to echo the extravagant splendor of all that God is and all that God does. That's why there's so much beauty in our world, because there is unspeakable beauty in God. Now, this is true of any creator-creation relationship. 
Um, the, the created thing is a mere echo or, or a partial testimony of the quality that is in the creator. And so um, you might think of, of all of da Vinci's artistic skill. Well, that greatly uh, supersedes just the skill of the Mona Lisa, does it not? The, the Mona Lisa is just one testimony to da Vinci's artistic skill. And if you think about the modern airplane foil and the shape of the wing, that if you get it going fast enough, will actually lift a, a multi-ton metal object into the sky. You might think, wow, that takes a lot of ingenuity and brilliance, but that was just a piece of the ingenuity and brilliance of the Wright brothers as they came up with that design and understood the physics behind it all. And so when we read Genesis chapter 1, when we read that in the beginning God created the heaven and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters, and God said, and then what God said resulted in day and night, and stars and moon and sun, sky, land, sea, varieties of plant life, swarms of living creatures in the sky and the earth and the sea, and humanity itself varied in gender and appearance, personality and skill. When we see all of this beauty come out of this creating event of God, what are we meant to take in from all of that? Well, what we're meant to conclude is that God is more beautiful than anything we could possibly imagine. Because it is simply one of his works. Rob read for us Psalm 145, and we see in this text, David catalog, he doesn't use the word beauty. The word beauty actually doesn't appear very often in our English translations of the Bible. You have to see its principle being talked about, and it's all over Psalm 145. Line after line describes God's extravagant splendor and his goodness in all that he is and all that he does. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. His greatness is unsearchable, verse 3. One generation shall commend your works to another and declare your mighty acts, verse 4. On the glorious splendor of your majesty. Do you hear how he's like trying to put words together to, to bring forth the beauty of God? On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works, I will meditate. They shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness. He's talking about generations. These generations shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. Verse 7. The Lord is gracious, merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. Verse 8. Verses 10 through 12, all your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and all your saints shall bless you. It's not like one guy over in the corner is, is saying, hey, this God's kind of great. No, all of your saints, everyone shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and tell of your power and make known to the children of man your mighty deeds and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. The beauty of God is like an anthem that is going out from his people throughout all creation. Do you hear all of this beauty that David beholds 
in God. Unsearchable greatness. Generations needed to speak of the goodness of his works. God is famous for his abundant goodness. His righteousness is worth singing about. In other words, when David looks at God, what he sees, what he, what he is captivated by is just something more beautiful than words can even describe. He sees extravagant splendor and goodness in all that God is and all that God does. Now, we've talked a little bit about creation and how we see God's beauty in creation. And we've talked a little bit about Psalm 145 and, and a more uh, descriptive display of the beauty that David saw in God. There's one more thing I want us to see together as we're, as we're thinking about the beauty of God. And I want to kind of lay those texts together. So this is a little bit of a mind bender, but, but follow with me. Creation, we said, was an overflow of the beauty that God possesses in himself. And then in Psalm 145, we heard these, this description of only some of the ways in which God is beautiful. But consider this. Consider that much of the beauty that we see in creation exists in how diversity or different things exist in unity or together. And so, for instance, the diversity of sun, moon, and stars make up the brilliant sky that we behold both day and nighttime. Plants, which is just one category of living thing that God made on one of the days of creation, exist in a wide variety of kinds and blooms and fruits. Humanity itself, one species, one creature, exists in both men and women, um, and books have been written on the differences and variety between men and women. That's just one um, way that we are different. The, the created beauty that we find in creation, this, this diversity among unity, that, that's intentional. And that's purposeful because the God who created it all also exists in variety among unity. This is what we call the Trinity. He exists as three distinct persons, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, who share the same nature and purpose as a three-in-one God. What that means, and because God existed in that three-in-one form, that community, before the earth existed, that was not part of creation, that is part of his eternal being, what that means is that the beauty that David sees in part in Psalm 145, the Father, Son, and Spirit have seen in one another for all eternity past. I mean, for all of the beauty that we're reading about in Psalm 145, it is, it is but the fringe. It, it's like the, the introduction. It is the prelude. Because for all eternity past, three perfect beings have been staring one another in the face and beholding their own um, extravagant splendor and goodness in all that they are and all that they do. That's some beauty. We're not talking about finite creatures who can hold maybe three or four ideas in their mind and say, yes, that's beautiful. I could not paint for you a perfect vision of that sunset that I saw a few weeks ago because my mind, it just can't contain that many ideas. I can't remember. 
But for decade after decade, century after century, eon after eon, all eternity past, three infinite beings beheld infinite beauty one from another. That's how much splendor is in this God. That's how much beauty is in this God. The Father looked at the Son and he said, you are extravagant in your splendor and goodness in all that you are. And the Son looked at the Father and said, you are extravagant in all the splendor and goodness that you are. And the Spirit was mixed up. They just all were perfect in their union and community together as they beheld one another's beauty. Each person, perfect in every respect, praiseworthy in every respect, beautiful in every respect. And yet we can lean on this a little bit more because the most beautiful part of the Trinity is not just there that there are three individually beautiful beings, but how each person then devotes himself to the others in self-giving love. And so it's not as if three of us just lined up here and we are three individuals and we said, oh, well, this one has splendor and this one has majesty and this one has power, but they are, we, they become one. It's, it's more like a cosmic, uh, I mean, marriage is the closest thing we have to how these three people relate and subject themselves one to another. So consider John 3.35, which says, The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. And at the same time, Jesus said in John 8.28, I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father has taught me. It is the Trinity's self-giving love for one another that actually makes them one. When the infinite perfect Father gives himself to his infinite perfect Son and vice versa, including the Spirit, there's no room for division. There's no chance that they disagree. There's just fullness of joy, one in the other, perfect unity amongst this three-in-one God. All of the beauty that you and I see in creation are pointing to that. It points to that reality, this inner beauty among the Trinity itself. And so the next time you see anything that makes you stop, whether it's a sunset, a piece of music, the ocean, whatever, think about the Trinity who made it all. It is but just an echo. It is nothing. If you could see them... The things that we are captivated by would just be drab and pale in comparison. They are but echoes. So we've talked about um, just how strange it is that our world contains so much beauty. And we've talked about that the reason for that is because God is beautiful and he created the world to echo his beauty Let's talk about the beauty of Jesus. Because at this point, something might not quite sit right with us. If, if the Trinity has so much beauty within it, including God the Son, we, we've talked about that, why, when we read about the life of Jesus in the New Testament, why does his life appear to not be filled with so much beauty? Why, why did he come as a poor 
man, a homeless man? Why was he hated by the elite of his day? Why was he ultimately tortured and killed on a cross? I mean, where is the beauty in that? From an outsider looking in, the life and especially the death of Jesus was a a very ugly thing. Crucifixion, it was not a place for children, women, or even most men in that day. The, The lashings and the scourging that Jesus would have endured would have left his back literally ripped open. And the crown of thorns that was placed upon his head and the beating he received with rods would have left him swollen and the blood just freely flowing from head to toe. And that was before the executioners drove nails between the two arms, the two bones in his forearm and a spike between his ankles to keep him suspended in midair against a rough beam of wood. I don't know if you know, but the, the Romans, uh, who were just very, very cruel and lethal, they, they crucified people with their legs bent. If you've seen perhaps portraits of the crucifixion, normally uh, Jesus' legs are bent. The, the reason for that is, is as you hang by your arms, your organs actually suffocate your lungs. It pushes the, the air out of your lungs. And so the Son of God would have had to put weight on the spike in his ankles merely to take a breath. The only thing you would have heard had you been there would have been the pounding of nails and the screams of agony. All of this happened to one of the members of that trinity that we described. He was falsely accused. He was falsely hated. He was envied by the powers of the day for how the crowds loved to listen to him and the power he demonstrated in healing their poor and their sick. I'm persuaded that the crucifixion of Jesus was the ugliest thing that has ever happened to anyone. But all of that ugliness isn't ultimately what killed Jesus. What killed Jesus was a plan conceived in the inner workings of the Trinity itself. It was a plan agreed upon by Father, Son, and Spirit, And it was put into effect with unilateral agreement. What killed Jesus, and you might remember this because as we read the gospel account, the Romans who who knew about the time someone should die from crucifixion were surprised that he should die so early. Something else killed Jesus. What killed Jesus was the very wrath of God coming upon the Son of God to pay for the people of God. You see, like the rest of humanity, you and I have in many ways and at many times, yes, benefited from God's beauty while denying him his place as God in our lives. We go our own way. We chase godless pursuits. And as a result, we don't live lives of love like he designed but lives of self. And so we get angry when we don't get our way. We bend the truth to our own benefit. We lust for what God has forbidden and then think him mean for forbidding it at all. We use other people so that we can get ahead. We mock and ridicule those we disagree with to make ourselves feel better. I mean, the list goes on and on. 
God created the world, including you and me, to echo his extravagant splendor and goodness. But because of our sin, we look so little like him. Now, in the face of all of this sin, I think it would be possible for someone to make an accusation against God, to accuse him of really not being all that beautiful. Here's how I think that accusation could go. It could go, well, now really, God, you say you're beautiful and it's well and good that you're self-giving between Father, Son, and Spirit, but, I mean, let's be frank. After all, Father, Son, and Spirit are each perfect and good in, in their own way. And so it doesn't seem really that extravagant or beautiful to merely love that which is already lovely. God, tell me, what, what is your attitude toward the unlovely? Toward those who have mocked your beauty? Those who have run away from you and chased other things? Toward those on the wrong side of your law? How extravagant can you be toward those who have no real hope that you would ever love them? Is your splendor and goodness so extravagant that it would extend to them? Well, surely not, God, because how can you love them and condone their sin without becoming a devil yourself? The cross of Jesus Christ is God's answer to that accusation. He does not condone sin. But through the cross, the Father, Son, and Spirit say together, this is how beautiful I am. This is how extravagant my splendor and goodness is in all that I am, in all that I do. I will pay for the sins of my people with my own blood. One of the three of us will hang as a bloody, misshapen man while we deliver him up to my very wrath, hell on earth, and he will atone for their sins. And that's extravagant. It's extravagant. That's my paraphrase of what we heard Jesus say in John 15 when he said, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Or perhaps when he said in John chapter 10, for this reason the Father loves me because I lay down my life for the sheep that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Do you hear the plan that killed Jesus? The crucifixion is the greatest demonstration of God's beauty. It shows us just how extravagant and good God is in all that he does and all that he is. We were the criminals. He was the king. And the king died a criminal's death. I mean, think about it this way, brother or sister. Everything that you've done that you know is wrong, including the things you've arrogantly boasted about and the things that you are so ashamed about, perhaps you've not told another soul. God knows them all, and Jesus hung for them all. He paid for them all. He took the punishment for them all. 
What is remarkable about all of this is that despite our many sins against God, we are treated as a member of the Trinity itself. Now, if you think that's overstretching the bounds, listen to what uh, pastor and author Steve DeWitt say. He, He puts it like this. He says, The cross gives finite human beings a small taste of what it is like to be a member of the Trinity. In the moment of his sacrificial death, Jesus gave to us what he had given to the Father for all eternity, everything, the total surrender of self. What I don't mean is that we become part of the Trinity. What I mean is that the interactions that the Trinity has had one to another because of their beauty and how they give themselves to one another, that is the very thing that Christ is giving you through his death and resurrection. He gives you everything. He holds nothing back. Brother and sister, can can you and I remain unmoved when we behold this kind of beauty? Can we be cold and disinterested in a God who loves us like this? Do not our hearts leap out of our chests when we consider the beautiful love that Jesus has lavished with us, on us? We should be. (laughs) I think we could all say, well, we should be. And perhaps you are here this morning. And if you are, that is wonderful. That is exactly the response we should have. If not, if you aren't so impressed, and there have been plenty of times where I read about the majesty and beauty and grace of God, and it's like words are just pinging off my heart, in one ear, out the other. Why is that? Well, the reason we often aren't impressed by the beauty of God in the gospel of Jesus Christ is because naturally the devil through sin has blinded us to it. Now, this is complete in in unbelievers, but I, I think even for us who are saved, we experience this in part through our indwelling sin. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 3 and 4 Paul says, even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled only to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory. Glory is a very close synonym to beauty. The gospel of the beauty of Christ, who is the image of God. That means, brother or sister, that every time you come here for Sunday worship, every time you, either by yourself or with someone else, open a Bible and read of the wonderful things God has done and the, the, the beauty of his character, spiritual warfare is happening. We will not just automatically unto ourselves see this beauty and behold it. If you see it and behold it, that is a miracle. That means that that in that moment, Satan has been thwarted. Because you are not blind to this beauty. 
It means that, verse 6, God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the beauty of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That's why we can see it. If you are here and you have been blind all your life to this beauty, praise God, you need not be blind one minute longer. Because the God who spoke and galaxies came into being is now right now, in the business of speaking to dead hearts to let them see. Behold, this God. And so the solution to a cold heart toward God is, well, it's, it's not despair, and it's not just shrugging it off and saying, well, I guess this is where God has me. The solution is for us to get the gospel in front of our eyes as much as possible and cry to God, would you speak? Would you just speak and let light penetrate my heart, warm my heart to see your beauty, God? That's what David prayed. Of all the things that he would ask, what did he ask? That I might dwell in the house of the Lord to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. Oh, let that be our prayer. Let that be our prayer. If, if you are, are here today and, and you have been complacent, you have been okay without regularly seeing God's beauty, I, I just pray that God would shake us free of that complacency. That this would be our hunger and our thirst to see God and behold his beauty. That is what motivates mission. That is what motivates holiness. That is what motivates obedience and saying, God, I'm following you wherever, whatever, because you are simply better than anything else that I could imagine. That's, I think, the general application, the big picture application for seeing God's beauty is to hunger and thirst for him and follow him wherever he leads. I think there is a more specific application to seeing God's beauty, and it, it was in the context of John chapter 15. So let me just draw that out as we conclude. John chapter 15, we read verse 13, which is, is really where I focused earlier, where, where Jesus says that greater love has no one than this, that someone would lay down his life for his friends. That's, that's the beauty of Christ on display, that he would lay down his life for us. I just want to read verses 12, 13, and 14, where Jesus says, This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends. Beautiful words those are. You are my friends if you do what I command you. Now in verse 14, Jesus is linking a specific fruit that should go hand in hand with seeing the beauty of his self-giving love. Did you see that? Note he does not say, you'll become my friends if you do what I command you, but rather, you are my friends if you do what I command you. And so, in, in realm of what he's talking about, obedience doesn't earn friendship with Jesus, it doesn't earn that self-giving love, but it is an outward sign that that kind of friendship exists between us and the Son of God, the second member of the Trinity. 
What command is Jesus talking about? What is the fruit of being a friend of Jesus, of beholding this self-giving beauty in Jesus Christ? Did you catch it? It was up in verse 12. This is my commandment. Jesus is so plain. He doesn't leave us guessing. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Here's how you know if you are seeing the self-giving beauty of God rightly. You will be caught up in it. And you will give yourself in love to the people of God. You'll find other Christians to encourage in the faith. You'll disciple others and look for people to disciple you. You'll share the gospel in hope of making brothers and sisters out of those who are today just totally blind to the beauty and glory of God. One of the things I love about this church, brothers and sisters, is how we, uh, you know, in a moment we're, we're going to sing and then we'll, we'll conclude. And, and a lot of you will hang around here for a while. Um, we'll, we'll stick around. We'll talk together. And what a great opportunity this is to love one another, enough to say something like, brother, sister, how are you doing spiritually? Or, or what stuck out to you about the service today? How is your heart encouraged in the Lord? Or, or how can I be praying for you this week? These are all just small ways that we overflow in, in this kind of life-giving love. We put our preferences on hold and take an interest in someone else's spiritual health. That they too would see the beauty of God. Or if you just feel dry, if you are in a dry season, it could mean just being honest about that with somebody else. And saying, brother, sister, I have not seen the beauty of God in a long time. Would you pray for me? Could we talk about this together? We are all weak in, in many ways. And as we said earlier, God really loves to answer prayers like that. David did not offer his prayer to behold the beauty of God because he thought, ah, God's probably just going to write me off. I think he really believed that God would do that. Let us really believe that God will do that, that we will see his beauty. Jesus came to display God's beauty by loving sinners, atoning for their sins so that they could love one another the way he loves them. Let us behold the beauty of Jesus Christ. And let us show it as we love his people. Let's pray now to that end.